Last 5% Media. On this podcast, we discuss details of crimes that are often violent in nature. In addition, historical audio and original interviews include outdated language to describe sex workers. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Jim Geddes, and I'm a detective assigned to the Bellingham Police Department uh, when all this started. Bellingham is a college town in Washington State, not far from the Canadian border. In 1979, about 45,000 people lived there. I had been a detective for almost three years with the Bellingham Police Department, and uh, mostly I was assigned whatever had come in the prior day. One case could be a burglary, another one could be a a theft, it could be anything. Around 9 o'clock on the night of January 11, 1979, a manager of a Fred Meyer supermarket became concerned. Karen Mandick, one of his employees and a marketing student at Western Washington State University, failed to return to the store after a two-hour break. The manager called Karen's boyfriend, who thought he might know where to find her. Karen had told her boyfriend she had a house-sitting job that evening. Karen said she and her roommate, Diane Wilder, would make $100 each for just a couple of hours of work. Kenneth Bianchi, a security guard Karen knew through work, set up the gig. And although Bianchi told her not to tell anyone, Karen told her boyfriend where she would be that night and gave him the address. Her boyfriend shared this information with the police. They located Bianchi and arranged to meet him at the security company he worked for. Bianchi told the officers that he couldn't recall anyone named Karen from Fred Meyer. He said he went for a drive earlier and went back to the office to do some work. After about 15 minutes, the officers excused Bianchi and resumed their search for the missing women. A few hours later, one of Karen's friends entered the apartment she shared with Diane Wilder. He found a note beside the phone with Bianchi's name and phone number and the message, call please. Investigators returned to Bianchi's workplace and asked him a few more questions. Ken and I, he just sat next to me and I talked to him about what he knew and what he didn't know. This time, Bianchi said he knew Karen Mandic from work, but he hadn't seen her for several months. He also said he knew nothing about any house-sitting job. He was very calm, very collected. He had a very suave demeanor about him. He was very conscious of his physical appearance. He was very, very sure of himself, and he told me stuff, and he didn't look away or anything. And I can't remember all the details he told me, but other than the fact that he uh, didn't have the foggiest clue of where the girls could be. Later that afternoon, a woman heard a report on Bellingham radio station KOIN. Two women were missing, 22-year-old Karen Mantic and 27-year-old Diane Wilder. The radio announcer urged anyone who'd seen the women or Karen's green 1978 Mercury Bobcat to call police. The listener realized that when she left for work that morning, she'd passed a green car parked in a cul-de-sac near her home. She wrote down the license number from the radio report and drove there. When she got to the cul-de-sac, she compared the license plate to the information from the radio. It was the same car. She called police. 
Bellingham detective Jim Geddes. I just ran, jumped in my car, and drove out as quick as I could to the south side. I went down that cul-de-sac. The car was sitting there. I walked around the car and walked, looked in through the hatchback of the car and observed both girls' bodies in the hatchback of the car. I'm Joseph Radota. I first encountered the Hillside Strangler case in my prior career as a political opposition researcher. In this podcast, I revisit 10 homicides that terrorized Los Angeles in 1977 and 1978 and the longest murder trial in U.S. history. Listen to the sound of my voice and you'll find the heaviness coming into your arms. And he backed away from me, almost as if being closer to me was a dangerous place to be. I got the impression that it could have been two people. From Last 5% Media, this is Hillside. Chapter 4, Little Pieces. After Bellingham police discovered the bodies of Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder, they arrested Kenneth Bianchi within the hour. They impounded the security vehicle Bianchi drove the night before. Inside, they discovered a briefcase and turned it over as possible evidence. Detective Jim Geddes opened the briefcase to make an inventory of its contents. In the briefcase is a file of names, and they all have this California address. One of them is a application for a college in the L.A. area. So I just merely as background investigation start checking, okay, who else is involved or Maybe this is a stolen item. I don't know yet. And one thing that happens during these kind of cases is the phone constantly rings at home. L.A. Sheriff's Detective Frank Salerno. People calling in, stations calling in. We think we've got the suspect or we got a suspicious guy here. We think it may be your guy, you know, or, or this, or uh, are you sitting down, listen to this, you know. And most of them are bullshit. On Saturday morning, Bellingham Detective Geddes called the LAPD to check out a suspect they had in custody. Geddes couldn't reach anyone there, so he called the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. I'd taken the day off. I'd actually, I know exactly, I'd gone duck hunting. And I was out in the garage cleaning up my gear. The sheriff's officer who answered the phone had worked on the investigations of Judy Miller and Cindy Hutzbeth and he was familiar with the other Hillside Strangler cases. So he was well aware of what we were looking at and looking for. After he got the, the Bianchi's name and he started running him, he, he saw right away what we had. Well, he recognized it, bang. He reached Salerno at home. So I get a call. He says, Frank, we got a call from Bellingham, Washington. Uh, I had no idea where Bellingham was, but... Uh, I said, okay, what's up? He says, they got a guy in custody up there. He's suspected of a double homicide, two females. And uh, they wanted us to do a background on him, get some information. And um, here's what I found out. Salerno immediately recognized the addresses. 
1950 Tamarind Avenue, the apartment building in Hollywood where someone abducted Kimberly Martin, victim number nine, and 806 East Garfield Avenue in Glendale, the same address as Christina Weckler, victim number seven, across the street from Cindy Hudspeth, victim number 10. So Salerno said, I'll be right down. He headed to the L.A. County Hall of Justice downtown, and a small office where the sheriff's department kept a paper copy of every clue the LAPD Hillside Strangler Task Force had handled. I got, pulled that little file out, I opened it up, and I went to the bees. When LAPD detectives questioned everyone who lived at 1950 Tamarind Drive in Hollywood, the man in apartment 329, who said he heard a woman scream the night before, was Kenneth Bianchi. They knocked on his door. He's living in that goddamn building, you know? On January 19th, 1978, a woman who worked at California Land Title called the Hillside Strangler Task Force. She said one of her former co-workers might be the Strangler. He claimed to be a former policeman, she said, and was involved in part-time pimping. She said the man was named Ken Bianco. A detective noted on the clue the information was rumors rather than facts. Two weeks later, a woman called the task force and said a man named Ken Bianca was selling drugs, and he might be the Hillside Strangler. Another woman called the task force on February 11th. She said her daughter goes with a man named Ken Bianchi, who claimed to have been a policeman. Ten days later, a woman said her daughter was dating a suspicious man named Ken Bianchi. An LAPD detective interviewed Bianchi, who offered to take a polygraph. The detective concluded, nothing to connect. He's in there five times. I, said, I couldn't, I, I really couldn't believe it. Salerno reached an LAPD detective at home. I said, here's what we've got. Could you go downtown and pull those five packages and bring them over to our offices? You got it. An hour and a half later, the LAPD detective arrived with the files. He's a, he started going through the packages, and it shows he's an was a reject from LAPD reserves. Fits right into our th- one of our theories was it could have been a cop. Salerno called the Bellingham Police Department and explained that the California addresses of their murder suspect matched the addresses of at least three of the Hillside Stranglers' victims. I called Bellingham and I talked to the detective. And I said, have you ever heard of the Hillside Strangler? And he had. He said, no, I don't know. I says, well, this is what we've got going. The Bellingham detective said his department was about to search Bianchi's home. So Lerno said he wanted to be there. And I said, well, the quickest we can get up there is tomorrow, Sunday. And they said, we'll wait. So we, we fly up there, we meet with the detectives, uh, we exchange a bunch of information, and obviously we, you know, we tell them we feel this guy is our number one suspect at this point. Salerno, along with a detective from LAPD, watched as five officers from the Bellingham Police Department searched Bianchi's residence. And uh, we go with them. They serve a search warrant based on their case, okay? And we're just present. We're just, we're just listening and 
observing. They turned up a small metal box containing a slip of paper on which someone had written murder victim Karen Mandick's name and her telephone number. Detectives also found several books about psychology, pamphlets about hypnosis and hypnotherapy, various diplomas and professional certificates for psychology and family counseling, all bearing the name Kenneth A. Bianchi. Detectives removed these and other items from the home and booked them into evidence. I never, thinking back on it, really got the impression she was trying to hide anything. Salerno and the LAPD detective sat with Bianchi's girlfriend. She answered their questions over a period of three hours. And our main thrust was, tell us about Kenny Bianchi. Who is he? What is he? What do you know about him? Where did you live in L.A.? From the moment Salerno began investigating the murder of Judy Miller, he thought the Hillside Strangler might actually be two men working together. I got the impression that it could have been two people. I was just at the house in Bellingham, Salerno asked the woman whether Bianchi had any close friends in Los Angeles. What did he do? Where did he go? Who did he hang out with? Those type of things. She offered only one name, his cousin, Angelo Bono. I was the first person to talk to him before the LAPD did. This is Jim Mitchell. In the 1970s, he was a reporter for KFWB, an all-news radio station in Los Angeles. Friend of mine, yeah, gave me a call, said, I wonder if I could help him out. I said, why? He says, well, we got this murder up here. We got these two girls that were found murdered in the back of this car. And we got this guy up here. His name is Kenneth Bianchi. And they were holding him as a suspect. And this guy's from L.A., so I'm hoping that maybe you could find out some information about this guy, you know. So I started hitting my sources. Jim called someone he knew at the Department of Motor Vehicles. To find out if I could get an address on this guy. I had some friends at the MV that provide me with this information. And uh, I got an address on him. The address was in Glendale. 703 East Colorado Street. He drove there. A small house stood on the front of the lot. In the back, an automobile upholstery shop. Cars were parked on the property, awaiting new seats or other interior work. The owner of the shop, Angelo Bono, opened the door. Tough, small, Uh, smaller than I would have expected. Probably about my height, actually. He didn't tower over me or anything like that. Muscular, swaggered a lot. Really put on a tough guy appearance. And uh, he was, uh, uh, what do you want? You know, like that. Mitchell introduced himself. I said, hi, you know, I'm, I'm Jim Mitchell, and I'm here because uh, I'm trying to find out a little bit about uh, Gen Bianchi. What do you do this time? And I said, I said, well, he's being held up in uh, Bellingham, Washington on charges of murder. God damn it, that fucker. Bono invited him inside. I stood inside the house and I could look around. I'd been in houses that were set up, 
you know, for display, and for sale, and so forth. And I'd never seen a house as clean as this house. I mean, it was immaculate. He chose his words carefully. He was really quite upset about it. And uh, he started asking me questions about it, you know, and I feigned innocence to a degree. So I just don't really know a whole lot about it. At that point, I knew quite a bit about it. All I know was that, you know, that there were these two women that were found in the trunk of a car, and they were both college students, and they were found dead in the trunk of the car, and, and Ken Bianchi's in jail for their murder. As he shared this information, Bono shook his head and muttered, That son of a bitch. Mitchell asked the man, How do you know Kenneth Bianchi? He's my cousin. Bono tried to distance himself from that branch of the family. They sent him out from Rochester because he was causing trouble back there. I guess they thought I was As Bono spoke, Mitchell wondered, is this man a killer? And he backed away from me. Uh, almost as if, you know, being closer to me was uh, a dangerous place to be. Kenneth Bianchi told Bellingham investigators he couldn't remember anything about the night of January 12, 1979, when authorities believed he murdered Karen Mandick and Diane Wilder. He told his court-appointed attorney he suffered from long bouts of amnesia throughout his life. He sensed there was some entity inside himself, somebody that I don't know, that I'm afraid of. I'm Dr. John G. Watkins called in as a consultant on this case. Dr. John Watkins was a professor of psychology at a university in Missoula, Montana, before his death in 2012. He was nationally recognized as an expert on multiple personalities. Bianchi's attorney asked Dr. Watkins to meet with his client and evaluate his mental state. The sessions took place over two days in the Whatcom County, Washington jail. What do you want to find out about yourself? Who I am? Why do I do things I do? Why do I lie? Which is a big problem. I can help you to find out a little more about yourself, but I can't promise you what you'll find out. Dr. Watkins placed Bianchi under hypnosis. Listen to the sound of my voice and you'll find the heaviness coming into your arms. A nice, wonderful feeling you should let go. Deeper, deeper, just sort of going down. Such a good feeling. Dr. Watkins later wrote it was very difficult to hypnotize Bianchi, but after several tries, the suspect entered a hypnotic state. That's when Dr. Watkins asked to meet the other personality inside Bianchi. And I've talked a bit to Ken, but I think that perhaps there might be another part of Ken that I haven't talked to. And I would like to communicate with that other part. Part, would you please come to communicate with me? And when you're here, lift the left hand off the chair 
to signal to me that you are here. Bianchi raised his left hand. Dr. Watkins asked him if he had a name. You're not Kim. You're not Kim. Okay, who are you? Tell me about yourself. Do you have a name I can call you by? You can call me Steve. I can call you Steve. Steve said he sometimes took over Ken's body. He described the crimes he committed with Angelo Bono, beginning with the murder of Yolanda Washington. Oh, picked her up downtown, over on Hollywood Boulevard. Oh, she was a prostitute. She was a hussy. Yeah? What'd she say her name was? Don't remember. Drove around. She started to get scared. Uh, yeah? His asshole cousin. <laughs> he said, get rid of her. Oh, asshole, Angelo. Steve said he killed Yolanda. I killed the first girl. You killed the first girl? I didn't see anything wrong with it. It was just there. <laughs> oh, me and Angelo took her for a ride in a car and decided just to do her in, dropped her off, but Steve said the killing spree was Bono's idea, but they took turns killing the other women. Angelo was very accommodating. He started it. It worked out perfect. It was his idea. Oh, he killed some of them and he, he helped with others. Dr. Watkins asked if he was aware of all the publicity surrounding the Hillside Strangler. Apparently, uh, there was a lot in newspapers about what you guys did. Uh-huh, yeah, there was. Now, how do you feel about that? Hey, you know, what can I say? When you're popular, you're popular. After that, Dr. Watkins brought Bianchi out of his hypnotic state. Coming back to the count of five. Coming back one, two, three, four, five. Open your eyes. A week later, Bianchi changed his plea from not guilty to not guilty by reason of insanity. The judge presiding over Bianchi's case appointed a blue ribbon panel of psychiatrists and psychologists to examine the suspect and determine his competence to stand trial. The defense picked two experts, the prosecutors selected another two, and the judge appointed two more for a total of six. Between March 11th and July 12th, 1979, these experts interviewed Bianchi. The sessions total more than 40 hours, all recorded on videotape. First off, the videotapes were, they were terrible acting, okay? In, in my opinion. If I even wrote it in my notebook, I said, this is bullshit. You know, bad acting, you know, on his part. Sheriff's Detective Frank Salerno didn't believe Bianchi was telling the truth during these sessions. But one of the things is he started by giving first names. One of the uh, psychologists, you know, asked him, well, what was his name, the bad guy? This one's name was Steve. And then during one of the interviews, he spits out Walker, Steve Walker. What didn't mean anything, but God, got a name. 
the investigators have searched the location. Uh, we are now in the process of uh, securing uh, the residence. Deputies will be posted and uh, Mr. Buono will not be allowed to uh, enter uh, the residence until the search is completed. On Friday, April 20th, 1979, around 10 a.m., a team of detectives and laboratory technicians arrived at the home and upholstery shop of Angelo Bono. Investigators from the LAPD and Glendale Police Department joined them. The search took three days. He couldn't go back in his house, so we put him up in a, a hotel. I think we put him at the Holiday Inn, but he could still work in his business. Crime lab technicians checked the house for fingerprints using a chemical called ninhydrin. When sprayed on just about any surface, it reveals fingerprints. But when technicians sprayed the interior of Bono's house, the results surprised them. The results of the ninhydrin showed no prints. Nothing. Nobody's prints. It'd been obviously cleaned. Not even a fingerprint from the man who lived there. Angelo Bono. We now believe that um, that we have a case put together which we plan to submit to the district attorney uh, sometime later this week. Three days later, LAPD Police Chief Daryl Gates announced that investigators were ready to seek murder charges against Kenneth Bianchi in connection with the Hillside Strangler killings. Gates told reporters hard physical evidence linked Bianchi to the slangs. We believe the evidence will support uh, the fact that uh, Kenneth Bianchi is involved in uh, seven murders uh, in the city of Los Angeles, uh, two uh, under the sheriff's jurisdiction and one uh, in Glendale. Gates called Angelo Bono a suspect in the murders, but not the only one, and not the prime suspect. I still believe that uh, on uh, some of the murders that there's more than one individual involved. After three days, detectives finished their search of Angelo Bono's house and shop. Bono returned to his house. Detective Salerno greeted him in the driveway. We told him, hey, Angelo, here's your shot. You know we're looking at you, basically. Kenny's going to throw up all over you. Why don't you take the first shot, okay? Don't let him get you. And he looks at us, and he says... If you two guys do your job, you'll clear me. Two weeks later, Los Angeles District Attorney John Vandekamp formally charged Kenneth Bianchi with the murders of five women. Yolanda Washington, Christina Weckler, Kimberly Martin, Jane King, and Cindy Hudspeth. Police Chief Gates was disappointed. He wanted Bianchi charged with all ten murders, and he believed the evidence was there. But the DA told him it wasn't enough. In my view, an expert's job is to determine the facts as he sees them, regardless who pays his bills. It makes no difference. Dr. Martin Orn was a professor of psychiatry and psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. He held degrees from Tufts and Harvard. The district attorney of Whatcom County, where Bellingham is the largest city, chose Dr. Orn to evaluate Kenneth Bianchi's mental state. 
Dr. Orn conducted his examination over two days. And could you sort of bring me up to date as to where you are now? Okay, I guess I might as well start how I became incarcerated. Mm -hmm. I was arrested. My mind went, went through like just a, a, a constant between shock and confusion. And I hadn't killed any girls. Bianchi said that under hypnosis, he discovered a second personality named Steve. Dr. Orn said that was unusual. I know a good deal about multiple personalities. I've treated them. It is not a common approach. Based on his experience, patients with multiple personalities had three, or maybe more. It's very rare for there to be two, actually. That's one of the things I'm curious about. I don't know. I, you know, I really don't know that much, much about the field. It's just as new to me as it is to, you know, a lot of other people. Dr. Orn placed Bianchi under hypnosis. Deeply sleep, darkly sleep, quietly sleep, deep, profound sleep. Then Bianchi revealed another personality, in addition to Steve Walker, someone named Billy. Do you know how I got my name? No. Steve was going through a store. Some guy was passing by and, and mistook me for somebody else and called me Billy. Mm -hmm. I like that. It's, you know, it's a nice name, Billy. That night, in his hotel room, Dr. Orne reviewed the videotape of that session. The next morning, he met with Bianchi again. In looking over all of the tapes and trying to understand the totality of you, it doesn't really get us very far. And I'm trying to understand the totality that is you without getting lost for the moment. I've got these little pieces and I'm trying to fit together how it works, you know. You and I are at a handicap because I have little pieces too. Dr. Orne disagreed. He explained that if Bianchi were his patient, they would be working together to find answers. But Bianchi wasn't his patient. He was a suspect in custody accused of horrific crimes. The possibility of your using a multiple personality and perhaps even using some of the psychologists who saw you to your own ends to get help has to be considered very seriously. Sure, absolutely. And I don't think it has been considered thus far. And it's <coughs> something which concerns me profoundly. It's the most extreme possibility. There is no multiple personality at all. There's one guy who's got hang-ups and troubles and who screwed up and got caught. Doesn't like it. Dr. John Watkins, the psychologist from Montana, concluded Bianchi was a multiple personality. In his clinical evaluation of the suspect, Dr. Watkins wrote, 
Ken is totally unaware of what Steve is thinking and doing, and in fact, even of the existence of Steve. He said Bianchi was not competent to stand trial. Another doctor concluded Bianchi was a multiple personality, but wasn't insane. Yet another said Bianchi was insane, but wasn't a multiple personality. Dr. Martin Orn was the last of the six experts to weigh in. He concluded that Bianchi does not have a multiple personality. At the time of the killings in Bellingham, Bianchi had the capacity to appreciate the criminality of his conduct. Dr. Orn also concluded Bianchi was not insane and had no mental disease or defect that would prevent him from participating in a trial. Bianchi's defense attorneys wondered, would a jury vote to convict if even one psychiatrist said their client was sane? Prosecutors faced the same question. If even one psychiatrist testified Bianchi was a multiple personality, would a jury find him not guilty? We get a call from Whatcom County prosecutor's office. A letter just came from quote-unquote a diploma mill in Marina del Rey. A letter addressed to Kenneth Bianchi arrived at the house he had shared with his girlfriend and their son. And it was either for collection of money or Bianchi had bad-mouthed them and wouldn't pay him for some of the diplomas and things that he had them do. The diploma service was unaware Bianchi was in jail on murder charges. L.A. Sheriff's Detective Frank Salerno recalled that during their search of the suspect's residence earlier in the year, detectives had found a resume, several diplomas, and transcripts with Bianchi's name on them. And we had them in, we had them in evidence. So we pulled those out of evidence. One's for L.A. Valley College, one was for Cal State, Northridge, and one was for Pepperdine. Salerno and another detective started checking out this new lead. Their first stop was L.A. Valley College, a commuter school in the San Fernando Valley. And we hit the registrar's office, and we said, can you tell us who this belongs to, or if it belongs to the name on here, Kenneth Bianchi? And she says, I can tell you that it doesn't. The woman in the registrar's office pointed to a section of the transcript. The social security number is coded into about a 15-digit number. It doesn't match that. I said, okay. Salerno waited patiently as the clerk stepped out of the office. Ten minutes later, she returned. And she says, this transcript belongs to an ex-student by the name of Stephen Walker. You're kidding me. Under hypnosis, Kenneth Bianchi had told psychiatrists that a personality inside him had killed all those women. He said that personality had a name, Steve Walker. But Steve Walker was a real person. Salerno quickly located a current address and phone number for the man. He was a practicing psychologist in Southern California call him up and say, we're going to come out and talk to you. And he didn't know why. And we went out and talked to him. And we started it by, said, we're conducting an investigation. Does this transcript mean anything to you? And he reads it. 
He says, well, those look like the classes I took. The man recognized the list of classes, but the name at the top of the transcript wasn't his. It read Kenneth A. Bianchi. Salerno showed the man another document, a resume, again with Bianchi's name at the top of the page. How about this resume? Looks just like a resume I wrote. Salerno asked the man how his transcript and his resume ended up 1,200 miles away in Bellingham, Washington. Walker said he had no idea. Then he remembered something strange that happened a few years earlier when he was looking for work right out of school. He said, well, I applied for jobs all over the place. Well, did you ever leave those with anybody? He says, no, but he says, I think I remember mailing them to one individual who had a job as a counselor, and he he asked for copies of my transcript and my resume. Bianchi had rented office space in Los Angeles and went into business under his own name as a counselor. He displayed framed diplomas and professional licenses on his wall. He'd even printed business cards and left flyers on cars in the neighborhood where he lived at the time. Stephen Walker couldn't remember where he'd sent his transcript and his resume, but he did recall responding to an ad in the L.A. Times. We pulled all the L.A. Times for that time period, and in one of them we found an ad for a counselor, please send resume and transcripts to Dr. K. Johnson or something like that. And the address was a Glendale address that Bianchi had used. Detective Salerno had found the real Stephen Walker, and he'd connected Stephen Walker to Kenneth Bianchi. We said bingo. Salerno faxed the information to prosecutors in Bellingham. We sent it up to Whatcom County. The defense looks at it, show it to Bianchi. We get a call back. He wants to change his plea. He wants to plead and cooperate. Hillside is a production of Last 5% Media. This podcast was created, written, and hosted by me, Joseph Rodota. Our executive producers are Chris George and Joaquin Alvarado. Caitlin Bruce is our producer. Adam Mellion is our research director. Cheryl Duvall is our editor. Julie Checkaway and Robert Saladay served as consulting producers. Our sound engineers are Jeremy Dalmas and Craig Thomas. Craig is also our composer. Edgar Guerra designed our logo and website. Special thanks to the Center for Inquiry Libraries in Buffalo, New York, the Hoover Institution Archive at Stanford University, the Mainsfield Library at the University of Montana, and the Warnicke Ranch Artist Residency. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For information about this episode, visit our website, hillsidepodcast.com. And thanks for listening.